Genesis chapter number 25. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1 of this chapter. There's a couple incidences that we've uh, skipped over in Abraham's life. But as it pertains to faith, I, I believe this is a monumental time. You know, God gives us grace to live by and He gives us grace to die by. And God's grace is always sufficient for every need at every moment. If we'll only draw on that reserve, if we'll only nail ourselves to a cross and look unto Him to meet those needs, we find He's always sufficient. And in Genesis 25, we have the last chapter in Abraham's temporal life. Look with me in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then again Abraham took a wife... And her name was Keturah. Now Sarah has died in chapter number 23. And so he remarries. And she bare him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Shuram and Latushim and Laomim. And the sons of Midian, Ephah and Epher and Hanak and Abida and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now notice verse 5. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, a hundred threescore and fifteen years. That's a hundred and seventy-five years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost, and that's the first usage of that term in the Word of God, and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt by the well, Lehai Roah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight. Pray you'd use it in a mighty way and give me the unction to preach and to be unto your glory and to your honor. Do in each heart that which is most needful, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is the 14th installment of the life of Abraham. And I believe it's fitting that tonight we study part number 14, faith departing. For 14 installments, we've looked at the life of faith and the life of Abraham. And we've seen when he was an Assyrian ready to perish, the Bible calls him a Assyrian ready to perish, when he left the land of his fathers and journeyed and sojourned by faith and God's leading. And we've seen him uh, in Canaan. We've seen him in Egypt. We've seen him in Gentile lands. We've seen him at the altar. We've seen him at the grove. And many have been the shades with which this portrait have been painted. But one common theme has ran through his life, and that is faith. Abraham was a man that lived by faith. Now that's not just a meaningless platitude. That's not just a phrase that we use that, that has been cheapened by the everyday use of it. But consider for a moment that while most men in the world are living by sight today, as a Christian we're called to live by faith. 
Only those that have lived by faith, and I'm trying to be careful in the way I say this, I'm not saying that a man has to live a good life to know Christ. I'm not trying to imply that. God is there to save the utmost sinners, and I'm thankful for that. But the reason that Abraham was able to die in the confidence that he did was because he had put his faith in God. He had lived by faith, and in chapter 25 we see that by faith he is dying. It's been said before that death is not a period, but merely a comma for the believer. And it is merely a pause. It is not the end of all things. And we might not even really call it a pause because Paul wrote and said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Abraham comes to the closing of this temporal life. I think there's a few things implied by that. I think one thing that's implied is that good men still die. Christians still die. Now we're praying, we're looking, you've heard it before, we're looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. And I I resound that sentiment. I'm looking for the Lord to come back. But it may be that God does not come back, that Christ does not return in my lifetime. And so if that's the case, there'll come a day when this heart will stop beating. These lungs will stop breathing. And how will it be with us on that day? I want us to look at three things tonight concerning Abraham's death. I want us to notice first off the leading of faith. And we're going to see how he prepared for his dying. You know, it was exhorted to the children of Israel that they were to prepare to meet thy God. And I believe for you and me, we ought to make preparations in our life, don't you? Salvation is the chief and first of those preparations we ought to make. But that's not the only preparation we ought to make in light of the fact that we could meet the Lord at any moment. He made some preparations But we see an overview of the life of faith in Abraham. And then finally, we see the legacy of faith that he left behind. Notice with me in verse number 5 what the Bible says. And this enters into the narrative part. The Bible says, And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived eastward under the east country. I want you to notice first off that care was taken to provide for this son of promise. We see a priority shift in Abraham's life here. You see, earlier when Ishmael was driven from his presence by the command of the Lord, we find that it grieved him greatly. But now in his wisdom, we find that Abraham is giving all that he has unto Isaac. wonder what made him do that. You know, in a lot of ways, Isaac pictures Christ. Abraham is giving everything that he has unto him to be used by him. He made sure that his all was given to the son of promise. You know, one of the great tragedies in life, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. One of the great tragedies in life, you've heard it before, that youth is wasted on the young. I don't mean to talk uh, down about young people. I I love young people. I used to be a young person, amen? Some of you said you still are. But many times, the, the reverse side of that statement is this. Many times, by the time we get wisdom enough to give it all to Christ, we don't really have that much left to give Him. Isn't that true in life? Some of you remember a time when you didn't care a thing about witnessing to others. And now those legs won't carry you the way they used to. Some of you remember a time when you didn't have time to be in God's house faithfully. Now those eyes don't see so well 
when it rains or in the night time. You remember a time when you had no concern to work and to exert effort in the service of Almighty God. And now your health won't hold out to do it like you'd like to. We find that a priority shift takes place. Abraham gives everything he has. When he's giving it to Isaac, it's not just that he's giving it to Isaac. Isaac is the very embodiment of the will and promises of God for his life. Isaac had been the promised son, the one, the culmination of the revelation of God in his life. And he takes everything that he's got and he puts it at Isaac's disposal. He says, Isaac, I want you to have everything. Care was taken to see that his needs were met. But I believe for you and me, we ought to take this lesson. Let's serve God while we've got everything we need to do it. You may say, preacher, I don't have everything I need. You've got more today than you're going to have in ten years. You've got more health today than you're going to have in ten years. You've you got more time probably today than you're going to have in ten years. Why don't we serve God while we've got the opportunity to do so? I've heard young people say this before. One of these days, I'm going to buckle down and get in church and start serving God. One of these days, I'll give my life to Him. One of these days, I'll surrender myself. Maybe God's dealing with some of you young people about something in your heart and life. And you're saying, one of these days. Why don't you turn that one of these days into today? Because it could be you're not going to get that one of these days. Care was taken. But notice that compassion was illustrated. Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac. And he could have left it at that. Ishmael had in a sense been disinherited and disowned. And so Isaac, being the next born, would have gotten everything that he had. And there wouldn't have been given really anything to the sons by this concubine, Keturah. But instead, the Bible says that Abraham gave gifts. You know, it seems like sometimes it takes many years for God to soften our hearts to a compassionate place. Am I telling the truth? There's some old people, they grow sour. (laughs) But... uh, There's a lot of them that there's a tenderness in their heart. There's a compassion. They're not so quick to jump down somebody's throat. They're not so quick to judge. You know why? They've been there before. They've been there before. You know why young people are so quick? You say, well, are you saying we shouldn't judge? Well, the spiritual man judgeth all things. Now, I'm not talking about we shouldn't take a stand against sin. But I'm saying as young people, many times we're tempted when a man is down to show him the rock that he stumbled on. And usually older people are not as apt to do that. You know why? Because they've stumbled on a few rocks themselves. And as young people, the reason we're so quick to do it, you know why that is? We haven't met that rock in the road yet. We've not had to deal with that yet. We find that his priorities changed, but his perception changed. We find that in older years, he learned to have compassion upon those that he really didn't have any reason to have to have compassion on. Let me tell you something. If you go through life doing the bare minimum of anything... Anything, you're going to be miserable. If you go through life doing the bare minimum in serving God, you're going to be miserable. If you go through the through life doing the bare minimum for others, you're going to be miserable. You better learn how to use what God's given you and how to use it with compassion for the sake of others. If you're looking for any joy in life, it's not going to be found in serving yourself, but in serving the Savior. And we find that compassion was shown. But don't you notice a third thing? We find that a culling was implemented. What does he do in preparing for his death? He gives these gifts to the sons that have been mentioned in the first four verses. 
And then the next thing he does, the Bible says, is he sends them away out from the presence of Isaac so that Isaac wouldn't have their influence in his life. A culling had to take place. You ever notice as you get a little bit of years on you? And I'm not trying to preach from experience. I know that. But I've observed this enough to realize that usually when a person gets a few years on them, they tend to put away a lot of the foolishness that they partook in as young people. And they recognize that for the spiritual man to thrive, the natural man has to be abated. Let me give you this encouragement and this exhortation. And this goes for all of us, but particularly towards young people. I didn't intend on getting up here and preaching at young people, but this is the way the Lord's leading, so you just bear with me. Let me give you this exhortation. Every time that you commit a sin with the excuse... I'll fix it later. You're feeding the flesh. It's going to be harder to resist temptation the next time. Every time that you commit a sin thinking, I'll get it right later, you're making it harder on the spiritual man to thrive and to control and to drive you. The fact of the matter is this. We better learn how to do some culling in our lives. We better learn separations of idle things. Do you hear me? We better learn to start living like Christians and looking like Christians and acting like Christians. We better learn to start culling the things out of our life that might hinder the spiritual man thriving. We find this truth in the life of Jacob very strongly. Jacob, if if the theme was to be looked at in the life of Jacob, I believe it would be the struggle between the natural man and the spiritual man. Because over and over and over again, you see him in gleaming moments of faith towards God. And the next moment, he's in the gutter, in the energy of the flesh. But there came a time in Jacob's life, the Bible teaches us, when he wrestled all night with God. God finally broke his leg and broke his will, amen, and made him realize that there were some things in his life he had to deal with. And he walked away limping, but he walked away blessed. We better get to the point in our life where we understand that the influences around us affect us. The friends we keep company with. The things we put into our mind affect us. The things we surround ourselves with affect us. And we better learn how to do some culling in our life. Listen, if we're going to be happy at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to take separation. Amen? Am I? Everybody asleep? I guess we're all asleep, aren't we? Let me say that again. If we're going to be happy at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to take some separation in our lives now. We're going to have to learn to live for Christ. We're going to, or you say, well, what if I don't? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul said, we persuade men. Paul said, I'm going to have some things to answer for when I stand at the judgment seat. You will and I will too. But it'll be a lot better on us if we'll learn that there's some things in our life that just ought not be there. Boy, that's deep preaching, isn't it? There's just some things in our life that ought not be there. Some things that need to be dealt with and gotten out. You say, what are those things? The things that the Word of God condemns and the Spirit of God convicts. That's the things that need to be gotten out of our life. You say, everybody else is doing it. Yeah, and most everybody else is dying and going to hell, too. Isn't that right? So everybody else is doing it. Yeah, everybody else has got broken homes and broken hearts. It's not what you want. What's Abraham doing? He's trying to provide an environment for Isaac to thrive in. And it'd be good as parents if we'd make our minds up that we're going to provide an environment for our kids to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. I'll tell you, environment has a lot to do. And I'm not one of these that believes if a man grows up in a poor house and goes out and murders a bunch of people, he's got an excuse. But I have been around 
hard situations enough to know that the environment we place ourselves and our children and our families in is going to affect the way they're going to live. You can make it easier to serve God on your family or you can make it harder to serve God on your family. And husband, it's going to rest on your shoulders. It's going to be up to you to make that decision. You're going to be leading the home. Say, my wife don't let me lead the home. You're leading the home by not leading it, amen? You're leading it in the wrong direction. You say, well, my kids won't listen. Maybe that's because they don't see it in you. Everybody okay? Maybe that's why. My kids, they, they, don't, they don't like to come to church. Maybe they see that you don't like to come to church. The husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, she's subject unto him. You're leading whether you're aware of it or not. And maybe the reason they have trouble serving God is they don't see you doing it. We see that a culling had to take... That was fun, wasn't it? Amen? We see a culling took place. Why don't you notice not only the leading of faith in his life, but look at verses 7 and 8. See the life of faith that's spoken of. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. A hundred, three score and fifteen years. That's a hundred and seventy-five years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. That's what it takes to sum up the life of a man that we've uh, just spent, what, 13 chapters giving the narrative of his life. And in two verses, a synopsis is given concerning it. Two, there's no eulogy. There's no glowing eulogy concerning his life. Two verses, but they speak volumes. I want you to notice that his was a life of provision. It had been a hundred years since he had left the watch care of a pagan society. It had been a hundred years since he had left the household of his father. And when Abraham dies at this point in his life, he's not missed a meal. You hear me? He's not missed a meal. He's, he's, not, he's not gone broke. He's not gone hungry. In a hundred years, in a hundred years, God's met every need that he's had. He's dying and he's in a good old age. That's a good Bible phrase, isn't it? In a good old age. You know what that means? He died from natural causes, but he didn't die from starvation. He wasn't murdered in his sleep, but he died in a good old age. Every meal for a hundred years had come from the hand of God. Every single safe night's sleep had come from the hand of God. It was a life of provision, but it was a life of preservation. God had watched over him. This is a man that had seen battle. This is a man that had fought wars. This is a man that had dwelt in the wilderness. This is a man that hadn't provided for himself, but had a God in heaven that did provide for him. Some of you that have just a few more miles on your odometer than the rest of us can look back on your life and say, you know, God's took care of me every step of the way. That's the life of faith. The life of faith is not a life of failure. The life of faith is not necessarily a life of poverty. But the life of faith is the effectual dependence upon God for your everyday needs, both temporal and spiritual. And you know what we find? We find that God met His needs. We find that He did not die a beggar. We find that He did not die uh, from hunger. But we find that God met each and every need in His life. What's the testimony? The testimony is not the day of His death, but it's the life of faith that He had lived. 
The testimony is not these two verses. The testimony is the 13 chapters that we've been reading. That's the testimony. The testimony is one not only of provision and of preservation, but it's one of promise. Look what it says very carefully. The Bible says, full of years and was gathered to his people. Now, there's a lot of things about the kingdom of heaven, a lot of things about the nation of Israel, uh, not only in the millennial age, but also in the time after that that are significant here. But I just want to look at this in a general and broad sense, and I just want to say this. God kept His promises to him. These all died in the faith, not having received the promises. He looketh for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now you say, well, that's talking about the New Jerusalem, and well, it might be. But he also found a city whose builder and maker is God. God made some promises to Abraham. You know what we find? God kept every one of them. Every single one of them. The life of faith is the life of promise. Listen carefully to what I'm telling you. I know it seems elementary, but our soul chafes against this very thought. The life of faith is the life of promise. It's taking the Word of God, applying it to our hearts and to our lives, and in faith trusting God to keep His promises, and then seeing the result of Him keeping those promises. We see the life of faith. But I want you to notice the legacy of faith that He left. This is significant. I might have even preached a short sermon tonight. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> Look in verse number 9. Look at the end of it. The Bible says, And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. You may say, what does that have to do with anything? The cave of Machpelah that he bought from the sons of Heth. If you're looking in chapter 23, you'd find where Abraham buys this. But you'll also find that this tomb became the family tomb. And all the way down through Jacob, his sons were buried there. We find that it was a legacy of foundations that he built for future generations. Listen to me, each and every person in here. You're building something for someone in the future in your life. You're leaving a testimony for those that are behind you. Every single one of us, we're building something. Maybe we're tearing something down. I don't know your family situation. But we're doing something that's going to affect a future generation. It was mentioned in the testimony time. Well, maybe there's some hope for America. I don't know. Maybe there is. It's not my place to decide that. I'll say this. Without Christ in the homes, there's no hope for America. The only time in this nation's history that we've had a strong country is when we've had strong homes. That's been the only time. And so it's vital that we understand without Christ in the center of the home that we're never going to be what we need to be. But I don't know. I know this, that Abraham, when he bought that tomb, he bought it with the future in mind. He was providing a place for his family. I wonder in your heart and life, I wonder for your kids what kind of an environment you've built for them. I wonder what kind of testimony you're leaving those in a younger generation. You might say, I don't have kids. Sure you do. you got a church full of them. Isn't that right? I, I know growing up, I remember people in my church that I looked up to that affected my life in a positive way for Jesus Christ. So my kids are up. They're grown. Yeah, maybe those that are yours by blood, but not those that are yours by the bond of the Holy Spirit 
of Jesus Christ, you still have an influence. What kind of testimony are you leaving them? We see a legacy of foundations, but we see a legacy of forgiveness that was given. I don't know whether really Isaac and Ishmael buried the hatchet. I, I don't know. I don't know that there was ever necessarily animosity between them after they had grown up. I, I do not know. I suspect that there probably was. And certainly we know that their progeny never buried the hatchet. That feud is still, uh, that, still fighting today. And that flame is still burning hot today. But we find that Abraham taught his children enough that whenever he died, they could come together to bury their father. We see a legacy of forgiveness. Let me tell you something. If you look in Abraham's life, you'll find time and time again that he knew how to forgive. You'll find time and time again when he had opportunity. Hey, he could have left Lot in the Vale of Siddim with those five armies and said, you've made your bed, now lie in it. He could have, listen, he could have looked at Abimelech and said, I won't pray for you. I won't pray for you. But Abraham displayed a consistent example of faith. Let me tell you something. This is a generational thing. I've seen mothers and daddies that didn't know how to forgive, and they raised children that didn't know how to forgive either. You hear me? I could name names. I mean, I'm not, this isn't just vain words. I could name names. Of people that I can see in the parents an unwillingness to forgive. And in the children there's that same bitterness. And that same unwillingness to forgive. Let me tell you something. Your children are not only watching the way you act towards God. They're watching the way you're acting towards others. You got a feud with a family member? Your children are watching that. You better get it settled. Or don't wring your hands and moan one day. When your family, there's a sword that won't depart from it. And there's tribulation and drama everywhere and you got kids feuding and fighting. When they see that lack of forgiveness, that's what they're raised in. That's what they know. He gave such a powerful testimony of forgiveness, Abraham did, that these two men that hadn't seen each other very likely in years and years and years were still willing to come together to do this. We find that Abraham gave gifts unto the sons of the concubines. Maybe he gave a gift... Unto Ishmael, I I don't know whether he did or not. But I know this, Ishmael wasn't coming there so that he could get something out of it. He was coming there to bury his father and to see his brother. We see a legacy of forgiveness. I want to show you one final thing. We see a legacy of faithfulness. Look in verse number 11. The Bible tells us that Isaac dwelt by the well of Lahai Roah. That may not be familiar to you, although it should be. If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 16, you don't have to do that, but if you were to turn there, you would find that this was a well that a young lady by the name of Hagar, when she cried out to God, found in the wilderness. We talked about how that wells in the Bible picture the Holy Spirit in our lives. John chapter number 4 tells us uh, that if any man drink of the water that I shall give him, it shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And we know in John chapter number 7 that Christ called the Holy Spirit the living waters. And it says explicitly that this spake he of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given because Christ was not yet uh, glorified. And so we find what? We find that after Abraham's gone, we find now Isaac made his mistakes, mind you. But we find that after Abraham's gone, he's dwelling by the well. 
He understood the importance of a relationship with God. He understood faithfulness. If you study the Word of God, you'll find out that faith and faithfulness are not the same word. But you'll find this, the life of faith, true biblical faith, will produce faithfulness. You know why people aren't faithful to God? Oh, this is going to be fun. Listen, people aren't faithful to God because they don't really believe His Word. Am I telling it right or am I not? I'll tell you why those covers get heavy on Sunday morning. Because you don't really believe you're going to miss a blessing if you're not in God's house. I'll tell you why that tithe money goes to turns into magically, poof, into bill money. Because <laughs> you don't believe that it's going to really affect how God blesses you financially, whether you give to Him or not. I'll tell you why you start your head starts to drop when you pray, when you study your Bible, because you don't really believe you need that daily bread. A life of faith produces faithfulness. A lack of faithfulness displays a lack of faith in our lives. We find that the example that Abraham gave for his children was enough that Isaac, when he could have gone anywhere in the world, he wanted to stay by the well. The Bible says that if we train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. I know there's a lot of implications about that. I know we've all got examples of children that have gone wayward, and there, there's so many of them. And I wouldn't dare look at a parent that's dealing with a wayward child and presume to start Monday morning parenting with them. Just pray with people like that. They don't need your your criticism, amen? What's done is done. But I will say this. I will say that the way we raise our kids is the key defining element, other than salvation, that's going to determine the kind of people that they are. Other than salvation, the home that we provide is going to be the key defining difference. You know what we're seeing in this generation? Listen, I praise God for our young. We got some good young people in this church. We really do. But you know what we're seeing with young people in a, in a vast sense today? They're leaving the well. They're leaving the well. They have no interest in the things of God. You know what? They're sick of dead religion. That's what they're sick of. They're sick of playing church. And you know where they've learned it? They've learned it from us. They want something real. You know why Isaac stayed by the well? Because it met his needs. Can I still tell you that old-fashioned Bible-believing preaching and singing and soul-winning still meets the needs of this lost and dying world as their soul craves out for a touch of heaven and a relationship with God? It still meets the needs. The problem is we've not been drawn from the well, and so our kids don't think they ought to stay there. They're just moving on, moving on, moving on. A lot of them die out in that wilderness. A lot of them never get back to God. Listen, we got to understand that this life of faith culminates in the death of faith. And this death of faith is going to have a lot to do with what the life of faith in the next generation is. It's been said before that the sower holds the past and the future. In one hand. If he does not sow, there is no crop. What's a lot of responsibility in one man's hand? You say, but it was a good crop. But if it's not sown, it'll make no difference. We had it. Let me be a little historical here. And I promise I'm going to let you go. But you, you, listen, some of you know, in your generation growing up, we had a good crop in this country. Some of you remember the time when they were putting tents all uh, up all over the southeast and souls were being saved. 
Some of you remember when radio preachers, men like Harold Siler and Mays Jackson and Oliver Green were having evangelistic meetings and seeing souls saved when good Bible-believing churches were being built. You remember when we had a good crop. But look at us today. What happened? There was a generation that never sowed. They tried to rest on the laurels of the generation prior instead of taking the mantle and the responsibility that God had put upon them. And now there is arisen a generation that knows not God. I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say that. That's the truth. We've raised a generation that does not know God. And what little bit they think they know about Him is so convoluted and corrupted that it can't even resemble the God of the Bible. What's happened? People have quit living the life of faith. They've quit. The Bible says the letter of the law killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. We've got a bunch of dead religion in this world, and it's killing our younger generations. The only hope for the next generation to come is old-fashioned, Bible-believing Christianity with the power of the Holy Ghost in it and on it and all over it and all around it. That's the only hope. If we move away from that, we're done. We're dead. We might as well forget it. If we move away from that, we've lost this nation for good. If we move away from that, we've lost our families for good. That's the only hope that we have. So I beckon you. I encourage you. While you've got some life left, live the life of faith. Because it's going to make a difference in your family. It's going to make a difference in eternity.